0: Good morning, everybody. Why don't you uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 5, making our way through the Good Life series, uh, a study through the Sermon on the Mount. We are about a third of the way through the Beatitudes. It's starting to get good. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. I'll just go ahead and read it. From verse two, and we'll carry it on through verse five. Jesus, he, Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's just God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the words of Jesus today. We thank you that in them is life, an abundant life. We thank you that in them is gospel, the good news. We thank uh, thank you, Lord, that in them is uh, what caused the disciples. uh, When things were hitting the fan for them, when things were falling apart, Disciples looked at you, and I pray that our prayer as well would be this. Where else would we go, Lord? Where else can we turn to? To whom can we go to? You alone have the words of eternal life, and we believe that about you. Jesus, we believe that your words, preserved throughout the centuries, are infallible, inerrant, and authoritative, divinely mandated for your people to know the will of God And there is nothing more that we want to know right now than what God thinks and what God feels and what God says. In a world full of many other competing ideas and philosophies and ideologies, it is a breath of fresh air to be able to know that we can hear from our God. Thank you that it was your initiative. When we were blind and deaf and dumb, it was your initiative to open our ears, to unstop our mouths, to unblind our eyes, and to speak into our mess. And so, Lord, in our mess, as we are, we receive from you everything that you have in hopes that we would be changed from glory to glory, conformed in your image. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Meekness. It's one of the most pitiful sounding words in the English Bible. Some of you chuckle, but you believe that too. Which one of you rolls out of bed and thinks to yourself, I, I, I am going to try to be extra meek today? Which one of us ever considers or desires a little more meekness in our life? And we can go through the characteristics of God, we can go through the attributes of God and the fruit of the Spirit, and all of those things, looking at self-control and love and joy, and we love to wake up asking the Lord for those things, but who rolls out of bed going, I can't wait to be meek today? Who feels complimented when somebody rolls up to you and says, you're meek? Who compliments another person by saying, you're extra meek today, I've noticed, Will you take that back, sir. Your son was really meek during football practice today. I noticed. Just thought I would pass that along. I beg your pardon, sir. Meek is one of those strange words that we know is in the Bible, but we don't quite know what to do with. And most of us, perhaps some of us, have attached to it negative connotations. Meekness is weakness. So even rhymes, you see. Meekness is Indecisiveness. Meekness is a lack of confidence. uh, Meekness, see, I even got him confused. (laughs) Meekness is spinelessness. We attach to it all of these different forms that are negative, further confusing it. Perhaps that's why Scottish minister Sinclair Ferguson, describing it, said the word meekness is notoriously difficult to define. A.W. Pink would say there's been... Considerable difference of opinion as to exactly what meekness consists of. Because of its depth, the depth of its meaning, because of the different contexts that it, it can be a part of, and because of the negative connotations that we attach to it, it is at the worst confusing, at the best undesirable. There's a lot of things in the Bible that perhaps we would love to be known for, but maybe few of us would like to be known for being meek. None of us puts that on their resume, do we? Meek. A general definition of meek is like this, really simple. It means or it refers to being uh, or not being overly impressed by a sense of self-importance in you. We call that humble, right? It's not being overly impressed by a sense of self-importance. So there's a balance there. It doesn't mean you're self-deprecating. It doesn't mean you uh, have self-hatred. It doesn't mean you hate yourself. Nor does it mean that you are obsessed with yourself. It's like right in the middle. It's a healthy view of self. Not being overly impressed by a sense of self-importance. So that's why the translation of the Bible often attach two or three words to it that you might be familiar with. One of them is meek, the other is humble, and often gentle shows up. These are all right definitions of meek. But to really get at the, the depth of this word that Jesus tosses out in his Sermon on the Mountain, it'd be most helpful to consider who is meek in the Bible and to look at how they live their lives. That would probably be the most practical way of viewing it And the two examples that come to my mind are, one, Moses, and two, Jesus. Here's why I say Moses. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Now the man Moses was very meek, in fact, more meek than all the people who are on the face of the earth. Why are you laughing? Is it because Moses wrote the book? (laughs) I always thought that was interesting. I wonder... Few of us could get away with that, especially when you speak of yourself in the third person. But I have a suspicion that Joshua later snuck that one in there after Moses died. But this is the word of God. Whoever wrote it describes, the narrator describes Moses as being meek. Not only meek, but the most meek person who has ever walked on the earth. Now, this is very telling considering Numbers chapter 12. Because the two verses before this statement is a near mutiny, a coup, between uh, Miriam and Aaron. Remember, as you're reading through this, Numbers is just a book of the uh, people of God rebelling and God still being faithful. And in Numbers chapter 12, it immediately starts with Aaron and Miriam, supposedly, uh, supposed to be, supposing to be uh, Moses' greatest allies, talking amongst themselves and concocting a plan to take over. Their complaint was, why should the people of God only hear God's voice through Moses? Aren't we priests? Aren't I a priest, Aaron would say? Aren't we special? Don't we also hear from God? They were preparing to usurp Moses' throne, to take over a part of that authority, to, to grab the platform. And immediately the narrative comes to a stop with this line. Now Moses was very meek more than all the people who are on the face of the earth. It, it halts this aggressive flow to the narrative. It stops it with a piece of Moses' character. In other words, he didn't stick up for himself. He didn't have the, feel the need to defend himself, which is very interesting because in the next verse, in verse four, God stands up for Moses. Miriam and Aaron will never forget that experience. Moses doesn't stand up for himself. He doesn't throw his weight around. He doesn't defend himself. He's not aggressive. He's humble. He has this view of himself that is healthy and balanced and humble. Now, we can't talk about meek people without also talking about Jesus. And the only other word in Matthew, uh, aside from the, uh, Matthew 5.5, 5, where this word shows up, is in Matthew eleven twenty nine out of the words of Jesus again describing himself, and he says, "You know that uh, some of you are familiar with this verse. Take my yoke upon you," Jesus says, "and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." Gentle in Matthew eleven twenty nine, meek in Matthew five five, the same exact Greek word speaking of the same exact thing Jesus speaking of that uh, that of himself and this is in a, a bit of a different context right Jesus is speaking now in this event to people probably who are bruised and oppressed and sick and in bondage saying you can come to me people who would have ordinarily been crushed under the weight of the religious scholars and scribes and pharisees of that day Jesus comes along and says you can come to me I will not crush you It was spoken of Jesus in Isaiah, we uh, quoted this last week, that a bruised reed he will not bend. Those who are tattered with nothing left to them that barely can make it by in life will not find themselves quenched when they come to Jesus. And so in this usage of the word, we see how Jesus deals with others. In Moses, meekness, we see a view of how, uh, how one views oneself. With Jesus, we see that meekness deals with other people. We have a humble view of ourself, and because of that view of ourselves, we are gentle in dealing with other people. So if you want to know what meekness means, just look at the life of Moses and look at the life of Jesus. You'll probably get a pretty clear idea. So it can't be cowardice. Meekness and cowardice can't be the same thing. Meekness can't mean indecisiveness. look at the life of Moses. He's not a coward, nor was he weak, nor did he have any lack of confidence, nor was he indecisive in his later years. He led a million and a half people out of the land of Egypt into the promised land by the voice of God. There was that whole parting of the Red Sea thing. Powerful. No one in here thinks that Jesus was weak. These two men were incredibly powerful, resolute and filled with authority to lead and yet the Bible describes them both as incredibly meek. It's interesting. In a classic Greek, there was, uh, the term meek was often used to describe animals who had been tamed. Uh, horses that would pull chariots. In other words, very powerful, aggressive Overwhelmingly strong animals who had been brought under control. And there's that idea that I think is very, uh, very helpful for this term is that it is power. It's not weakness. It's not spinelessness. It's not indecisiveness. It's not cowardice. It is sheer power under control. So there's also a sense of self control involved in this. That's why. Sinclair Ferguson would say it's in, uh, notoriously difficult to define. There's so much going on there. But if you can wrap your head around that, a humble view of self that leads to a gentle treatment of other people, power under control, you've pretty much got it. Jesus says this is the type, this is the, the, the group of people that will inherit the earth. Turn with me to Psalm 37, verse 11, for this phrase. Because Jesus right now is quoting this psalm to get this particular beatitude. If you want the wealth behind what he's saying to this group of people on that hillside, reading a section of this psalm is going to be very helpful. Psalm 37. Uh, We'll just start from the top. I'll just read like 10 or 11 verses. And as we do, this is King David speaking. Uh, Try to hear from his words, maybe get some hints about what's going on. What's being felt? What's the complaint? And what, through the mouth of David, is God telling his people to do? Matthew 37, verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath fret not yourself, it tends only to evil, the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land, in just a little while the wicked will be no more, though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land. See kind of a a bit of the feeling in David's voice, what's going on here? There's this uh, underlying concept throughout Psalm 37 that life is unfair. King David, the righteous one and the righteous people, uh, find themselves in places of dire need, dire straits, bad circumstances. One might even describe maybe bad luck. And you can almost hear it in his voice. Why are the righteous the ones that are suffering? And how come when I look out around me in Assyria and Babylon and all of these uh, surrounding nations, the evil people are the ones who are being successful. It seems like the people who have rejected you are the ones who are prospering. And yet your word promises that if we obey, we will be in the land, but it seems like it's switched entirely life. is so unfair. You ever feel that way? You are seeking first the kingdom of God, but nothing is being added to you except grief. And yet you look out and see people completely turning away from Christ, getting rich, being happy, being successful and prospering in seemingly every possible way. Now, is it any wonder that Jesus would use Psalm 37 as he's sitting on a hillside speaking to peasants the poor and the oppressed and the broken those who were oppressed by rome those who were oppressed by the aristocrats in their own nation those who were oppressed by difficult people and difficult situations jesus there in the sermon on the mount comforting the least of these by saying hey it's not it's not the oppressors it's the meek who will inherit the earth Now, in Matthew, he says earth, but he is alluding to that verse in Psalm 37, which is land, the Hebrew word for land, Eretz. Now, you might think of this, he's not talking specifically about the whole planet. If you're meek, you know, you'll get the globe. He's speaking about a certain plot of land. But if you're an Israelite, listening to Jesus speak about a plot of land, There is no way you're thinking about some little acreage in, you know, Egypt or Gaul or Spain. Land only meant one thing to an Israelite. It was a land that was promised to them starting all the way back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Specifically, promised to Abraham in chapters 12 and in chapters 15. Promised to Abraham's descendants spanning the Pentateuch, all the way into Deuteronomy. That land was later occupied by the people of God as promised in Joshua. Things started to get haywire in Judges, and by the time we get to 1 Kings, we see them expelled from the land because they broke the covenant with God by Assyria and Babylon. And all the prophets after them, like a holy siren, are screaming, you disobeyed God, and this is why you're here. Land only meant one thing. It was the promised land. Jesus is saying, the meek shall see the promises of God proven. It was in the promised land where God's shalom was. It was in the uh, in the Promised Land, in that square footage between the rivers Pishon and uh, uh, and the surrounding rivers on the side that that God uh, described and promised to God's people that His kingdom would be manifest, that they would see righteousness, that they would see justice, that they would experience truth, that His governing presence would be among them, in them, and around them, and he, they would experience the kingdom of God right then and there. That is the. Square of the Psalms, and that is the cry of the Beatitudes in Matthew, is that God will intervene even though it doesn't seem possible. Even though nothing in your life is working out for your good, God will one day intervene in your business, and justice and righteousness will prevail. So this kind of leaves the people listening to the psalm and the people on the north shore of Galilee listening to Jesus and the people sitting in a theater in Santa Barbara, kind of asking that question. Okay, we know that God's gonna intervene someday, but what do we do about it now? As you look through Psalm 37, you see that imperative over and over and over in verse three, verse five, and verse seven. Trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Trust, wait, delight. All that you have read thus far is a simple trust issue. Everything about what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, 5 and in Psalm 37 has to do with trust. God will intervene. He doesn't need our help. It's going to happen. He never goes back on his promises. We then in the interim period are called to trust in him in that way. So after you take account of what the word is supposed to mean, you look at the context in Psalms and Matthew, you get examples of uh, its use with two of the meekest people on earth, here's an accurate definition that we can work with. Okay? This is given by uh, R. Kent Hughes. I think this is one of the best The one who is meek has a gentle spirit because he trusts in God. It's not just humility by itself. It's humility that's founded on trust and faith in your God. It's a gentleness that flows out of a deep trust that God is who he says he is and is gonna do what he says he's gonna do. The whole point of this passage in Matthew 5, the meek having trusted in God are the ones who will experience the good life. I could actually probably just stop right there. No. (laughs) My daughter says that to me. I come home from work and I'm super tired. I try to convince her, persuade her to take a nap. And I'm like, Abby. And it feels so good to take a nap right now. It's so warm outside. And aren't you tired? And she'll think about it for a second. No, dad. (laughs) (laughs) This all kind of, and this is why I want to keep going just for a few minutes, this all brings up more questions for some of you. Because we know that the Bible says the meek, the humble, the considerate, the gentle, having trusted in God, are the ones you should expect to see in the kingdom of God. But what we're saying, or at least some of us are saying, is that's fine then, but this is now. And as beautiful and warm and fuzzy and religious and pious as this sounds, as inspirational as this sounds, this is not real world advice, bro, Everybody here knows that it's not the meek that get ahead on planet Earth. Everyone knows that only the aggressive get by in this life. Everyone knows about the rat race. It's borderline cliche. I also know about this. The last place that uh, Bree and I moved in, a little two bedroom apartment, which is incredibly difficult to find in the city of Santa Barbara. We're looking for one for months at a time, just Hawkeyes on Craigslist, looking for one to pop up, and for months and months, nothing ever popped up, and finally, that perfect one popped up, and we immediately made the call, and when I made the call and the appointment to check out this apartment, I heard through the grapevine that there would be at least three or four other people there with me at that open house to look at the same place, and my heart sank, and I was like, oh, no, what do I need to do? to make myself look better. (laughs) And I did my homework and I found out some things like the owners of the apartment wanted, uh, this, this cluster of apartments used to be back in the 70s an old UCSB hangout. Uh, where people were notorious for partying, and that was what it was known for. But the owners wanted a you know, kind of a new vibe, and so they were looking for slightly older, clean kept, quiet, really nice, personable families, hopefully with kids, no dogs, and all of that stuff. And so, I accumulated all of this information and I bought a new set of clothes. I bought a button down shirt and I bought a nice belt and I tucked my shirt in and I shaved my face and I combed my hair really nicely and I put on. A tie, and I put a bow on Abby's head, and I put her in a dress, and I put her on my side, and I walked into that open house, and sure enough, I was there with three other college students. And I thought to myself, it's mine. (laughs) We know intuitively that we, we have to be like that sometimes. And I share that story because there's no harm, no foul. It's an apartment. <laughs> but if we were to be honest with ourselves, most of us might readily admit, yeah, to get ahead in life, you gotta kind of put yourself ahead. And sometimes that means putting yourself ahead of other people. To stand out in this world, you gotta look better than everybody else or you won't stand out and that might entail you making people look bad. To be recognized in the city of Santa Barbara, you you gotta have something going for you, so you better be a little bit selfish. So yeah, I get the humility and the selflessness and the incarnational Jesus dying on the cross, you know, laying your life down, all of the blah, 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 and that works great in church. But everybody knows you gotta be a little bit selfish just to put food on your table. So, as wonderful as meekness sounds, it's not true. It's not real-world advice. Only the cutthroats and the aggressive get by in this life. And actually, that's not ac- that's not actually true. That's a deceptive lie that's been touted for decades through our culture, and it's actually not true. It's interesting. The uh, New York Times bestseller, three million sold. The book came out uh, almost a, uh, over a decade ago, 2001, by Jim Collins. It was a book called Good to Great. In the aftermath of that book coming out, businessmen, CEOs, and corporate figures were eating it for breakfast. And in this book, he desired to find through extensive, unbiased, empirical research and evidence... What it was, that separated good companies from the great ones. He wasn't looking at what made a good company good or a good company even successful. He was looking for what made the good companies legendary, remembered for decades after. And as he compiled this information, he was shocked by his finding. He had no agenda going into it other than finding out what, what was what. And of the five traits that he pulled out, the shining gem in his book was the type of leader in these corporations he termed a level five leader. And he would say that unlike the other types of leaders that are cutthroat, they are the stereotypical uh, jerks in the field. They are the ones that steamroll everyone to get to that place of authority and prestige and power. The CEOs, the leaders who turn their companies into legendary stories are what I call a level five leader. And here was uh, was his findings, are that they're the ones, they're not weak, they're not spineless, they're not indecisive. They are able, though, to combine their ambition with humility. He said that's what makes companies go from good to great. Humble, meek leaders not a Christian person. Well, not a Christian book, I should say. So it's actually not true. I don't want you to create that deceptive lie in, uh, in our head or, or entertain that thought in our heads that to follow Jesus means you can't be good at anything else. Nor does meekness necessarily mean that you can't be successful at anything else. It might, but not always. It's not actually true. However, this isn't what Jesus is teaching. I just wanted to throw that caveat out there. But that's not what Jesus is teaching. In other words, he's not saying what Jim Collins would say. He's not saying, hey, be humble and you will have success in this life. Although that might be true. People might like you more. That isn't Jesus' point. Nor is he saying, hey, if you're humble and gentle, you will enter the kingdom of God. As if that were some act of merit on our part. Jesus seems to be implying, hey you guys, gals, if you don't, if you listen to this, what meekness is and you say, it doesn't sound real world, it doesn't sound like real world advice, it's because you don't live in the real world. Meekness is a characteristic of my world and I'm bringing my world to bear on yours. The world that you live in is a fallen world where our values are skewed and our point systems are distorted and our idea of success and victory is very unlike what the kingdom considers to be successful. And I am speaking, Jesus would say, of a new world that is coming, my kingdom. And what you see in that, that tiny facet of it, meekness, is a reversal of power in the eyes of the fallen world around you. And in this new world, meekness, gentleness, self-control is a characteristic of my kingdom. And Jesus came in on the scene, on this little hillside, not just speaking about that reversal of power, but exemplifying it in everything that he said and did. Jesus lived differently. He stepped in on the scene and turned everybody's power structures on its head. He stepped into the business of the peasants and the poor and the abused, the hungry, the tax collectors, the sinners, after having been told, for years by Pharisees and Sadducees that this is what it looks like and he turned it on its head by living as a meek person. you say, well, why should I care about any of this? I know that this is what the kingdom is gonna be like, but how does it affect me right now? Because it does, right? Yes, Jesus is saying, yeah, in the future you will inherit the land, you will inherit the earth, but he also says you're blessed right now. What does that mean? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. There is a sense, we talked about blessing, how in a very real way, blessing is not just something that you attach to a photo of a latte as you're looking at the sunset with palm trees, right? It means so much more than that. It means so much more than happiness. It means, in a much more tangible way, that some part of the kingdom of heaven is coming to bear on the present right now. That some part of your kingdom inheritance is affecting the way that you live now. Blessed. So in what way is the kingdom of God affecting the way that we live now? The fact that we have inherited the earth as God's people. Well, for one, the kingdom of God later gives you a freedom from fear right now. Anybody who looks at their inheritance with the Son of God in the kingdom of heaven will start to experience a freedom from fear. This is why Jesus was speaking to those people with the Sermon on the Mount. Those who were oppressed and crushed, he was saying, there is a new life headed your way. You don't have to be so despondent. You don't have to be afraid of Rome. You don't have to be afraid of the Sadducees. You don't have to be afraid of the Pharisees. I've got a good life coming your way. This is the same thing that David would say and speak about his enemies in Psalm 37. The kingdom of God gives us a freedom from fear. It's that eschatological reversal of power where God gives his favor to the powerless in the world by sheer acts of grace. That means for you and me, those who have freely received from that gift, that if God is for us, who can be against us? Don't fear the person who can kill the body. Fear the God who can throw body and soul into hell. By the way, that statement isn't meant to scare you. It's meant to give you a grand picture of your God. Say, don't be afraid of someone who can scratch your skin. Have a holy fear and reverence for the God who holds your life and your soul in his hands. If God is for you, who can be against you? And people can take your stuff, and they can ruin your reputation, and they can hurt your feelings. They can do all sorts of cruel things to you in this life, but they can never take your future inheritance. They can never pry you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus your Lord. They can never separate you from him. They can never remove those things. And right now, it doesn't seem or feel like enough because our life can be so overwhelming. But when you're in glory with the King of Kings 10 trillion years into the future, you will look back at your 80 years here like a blip on a screen. As you are being satiated by the inheritance that you have in your God. and You are freed from fear in this life. That freedom from fear is going to immediately result in a freedom from self-preservation. What do we do when we're afraid of people? We protect ourselves. We protect ourselves and we isolate ourselves from other people. If we feel threatened by them, if we feel like they're out to get us, we have a sense of insecurity maybe, we protect ourselves. We go... uh, into that fight or flight method in our life where we self-preserve, we isolate people, we shut them out, and perhaps we even take it a step farther and we assert ourselves a little more. We defend ourselves, we throw our weight around, we push others down to make ourselves look good. All of these things involve using people because of our own insecurities and fear. When you're afraid of people and when you're afraid of circumstances, we generally often go into a self uh, mode of self-preservation where we're protecting ourselves at the expense of others. But when you lose that fear, when God begins to pry that fear away from your heart and you stop fearing people anymore, then you'll start to notice you're not looking at them as an obstacle to overcome anymore. You stop looking at them as a threat. You stop viewing people as just competition. And when you stop viewing them as a threat, as an obstacle to overcome, as something to push down, as a threat that's after you, you'll start to notice that you develop a freedom to love that person. What happens when the kingdom of God has to bear on our lives now? We witness a freedom from fear. Out of that, a freedom from self-preservation. That's why Jesus describing the economy of the kingdom would say, those who want to keep their lives will lose it. Those who want to lose their lives for my sake will reap it back again a bajillion times over or something like that. When you don't care about yourself, I should say in a healthy way, not like you hate yourself, but when you have a healthy view of yourself, you realize you're not that important in the scheme of things, you're not obsessed and self-absorbed, meek, it's really easy to start loving other people. This is really important for us to sink our teeth in because later on in chapter five, in verse 43, Jesus is gonna tell you to start loving your enemies. And at the risk of dumbing that down because we've heard it perhaps so many times, it's almost like a platitude, right, for, for us maybe, a meaningless platitude. I just want you to think about what that would entail. Who's your enemy? Who in this last year has really offended you, irked you, rubbed, your, rubbed you the wrong way? Who in the world, if they were in this theater right now and you saw them walking in on your way into church, you would sit on the far end of the theater or you just would walk back out the doors? Think of that person. What does it mean to love that person? <laughs> and I don't mean like a, an ethereal, intangible, sentimental love. I mean like, could you go to their house tomorrow and make, you know, bring them cookies? The person that you hate can you pray for their success in life? When they are successful, would you cheer them on? That's hard. That's hard. You know what that requires? Meekness. A person who has a right view of self and a right view of others and a right view of God and out of which causes them to just be gentle and considerate other people out of which they're able to love you say why should i ever care about any of this stuff i do not have any incentive to love my enemies i barely love some of my friends and you're telling me i need to be meek that's great that jesus is it. he's the son of god he could be meek so that i don't have to be meek right why should i care about meekness My immediate thought is because everything that you dislike about this world is marked by insecurity, by self-preservation, and by hatred. Everything that you hate about life as we know it, marked and tainted by insecurity, self-preservation, and hatred, And Santa Barbara is no different. It's just couched in language that makes it far more acceptable. Everything wrong. There's a lot of things right and a lot of things beautiful and a lot of things to celebrate about our wonderful city. But there are also a lot of things wrong, a lot of things that are tainted by the sinful effects of people watching out for themselves. And the church is to be God's evidence to Santa Barbara that there is a better way to live than that. The Beatitudes are God's evidence that we don't have to live that way anymore. And we don't have to scrape by, stepping on people's backs to get what we want, only to find out that we're still not satisfied. This is God's evidence that there is a better way to live than the world has pushed into your face. Now, meekness might not get you ahead in life, in this life. You might not get that dream job you were always hoping for because you're humble and meek and gentle and considerate. But you will get a taste of the next life to come. And what believers, and dare I say what reality needs most in this life, is to have a satisfying taste of the life to come. To be satisfied and driven by our life in Christ. Set your mind on things above, Paul would say, not on things that are of this earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Three most comforting words I have ever heard, hidden with Christ. There's a better way to live. And as we live by that indwelling presence of Jesus, we give examples to the people around us who are struggling. Those we interact with of a better life. Perhaps that's why Jim Collins, in his book, Good to Great, on page 37, advising corporations and CEOs on what to look for in a level five leader would say, you probably find someone, and I quote, with a strong religious belief or conversion. Meekness is a taste of the kingdom. It's a taste of the kingdom that already belongs to God's people. It's already lying latent within you. It's not something you have to create for yourself. It's there, just needs to be fanned into a flame. Reality, we will know. That the kingdom of God has touched our congregation when our lives outside of this theater are marked by a supernatural humility, by a supernatural gentleness, not just with our friends and with our family and even with our coworkers, but with our nasty employer with our enemies, with that neighbor who we just can't stand, with that person who cuts us off in the parking lot, with that other person who cheated us and robbed us and betrayed us, when we are able to look that person in the face and wish them welfare, we will know that the kingdom of God has come to bear on our church. Meekness is the hardest thing that I've ever tried. And I've tried and quit about 50 times. The way that the Bible would describe in order to get something like meekness, this is my last point, is number one, it has to be given to you from above. It comes by the power of the Holy Spirit in union with Christ, meaning if you're not born again by the Holy Spirit, you'll never have it. In Colossians 3, verse 2, that I just quoted, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Paul would go on to say in verse 12, now that Christ is in you and you are in Christ, put on then those things. Put on, holy, uh, put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness. Meaning it has been reborn within you because Christ is in you and he's perfectly meek. So now just begin to put it on. Meekness is, after all, a supernatural fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How do you put meekness on? I dare say it's by a disciplined, obsessive observance of Jesus. When he said in Matthew eleven twenty-nine, speaking about gentleness and meekness... He was offering to you an invitation. He said, you who are unable to live like me, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle. I am meek. I am humble. I will not crush you. I will not backstab you. I will not ridicule you when you wake up tomorrow and you fail to be meek with your kids and with your spouse. I will be right there, not bending a bruised wick. I am lowly in heart and you in me will find rest for your souls. The end of Matthew would say, baptize everybody in the whole world and teach them everything that I have taught you, observing everything that I have taught you. Who better in this life to look at than Jesus? Isaiah in chapter 53, describing our our Lord as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men turn and hide their face. He was despised and we, we, we esteemed him not. Surely our griefs he carried and our sorrows he himself bore, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the most powerful human being on the face of the planet. The one who would say, I can call down 10,000 legions of angels to rescue me from this cross if I want to. And who would say to his disciples in John 10, no one takes my life from me for I have the authority to lay it down and to pick it up. I can do anything I want with anything that I have created was the one who shut his mouth for the joy set before him. You know what his joy was? joy. You want to see power under tremendous control. You look at Jesus who defying every other act, humbled himself, closed his mouth, did not defend himself and rushed to his death to save those who were unmeek. Start staring at that for a while and you're going to start to notice your heart being changed. I'm going to call the worship team up this morning with a simple input, uh, invitation today that if you want a different life to live than the one the world has to offer if you want a taste of the good life, you must first taste of Jesus Christ. You can do that through singing. So you begin to sing lyrics about him that are true. You can do that in... Uh, posture of humility putting yourself on the ground and bowing before him and letting him work on your heart you can do that by sitting in your seat and just pondering the gospel you can taste of Christ in a very metaphorical fashion by taking of the bread and of the cup chewing on it and actually tasting something and reminding yourself that Jesus even though you failed miserably in everything that he called you to do For a lot of what he called you to do, he will never fail you. And in that is the motivation to press on. Trust in the Lord, brothers and sisters. Lean not on your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge him, and he will set your path straight. Let's worship.